Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Described by Polydor Virgil as a woman of the utmost charm, both in appearance and character, and Sir John Russell as the fairest of all his wives, Eustace Chapuis described Jane as of middle stature and no great beauty. Jane Seymour was of a natural, sweet nature, unlike her predecessor, and was considered virtuous. Welcome to the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. My name is Rebecca Larson, owner of TudorsDynasty.com. And in this episode, I'm covering Jane Seymour, third wife of Henry VIII. As you may or may not recall, Jane Seymour was at the very bottom of my list of Tudor queens. She has just always seemed so boring to me. To my surprise, while researching this podcast, I began to uncover a woman who was a bit more interesting than I suspected. As usual, before I begin, I must thank those who have helped to get me where I am today. First and foremost, my Patreon subscribers. Without your donations, I would not be able to give you this podcast. All the donations that are received go right back into the show. The costs involved in running my website and research materials to ensure that you get proper facts. If you feel you'd like to make a donation as well, you can go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Tutors Dynasty and click Become a Patron. You can choose the monthly level that fits your budget. For as little as $1 per month, you can join my inner circle of friends. Thank you to those of you who have been with me from the beginning. Welcome back to those who have come in somewhere after. And for those of you who are new to this podcast, welcome. Now, sit back, turn up the volume, close your eyes, and let's transport back in time to the life of Jane Seymour. We know her the best as the third wife of Henry VIII, but Jane Seymour, through her mother, was descended from King Edward III through his great-granddaughter, Elizabeth Mortimer, Lady Hotspur. Jane's father, Sir John Seymour, was a descendant supposedly of a man who traveled with William the Conqueror to England by the surname of St. Mar. Eventually, that name would transform into Seymour. Anne's father, John Seymour, was a close companion of King Henry VIII and was knighted in the field by his father, King Henry VII, at the Battle of Blackhearth. John and Marjorie Seymour had ten children in all. Their eldest, John, was expected to do great things, but when he died years later, his parents were devastated. (laughs) Next, there was Edward, who would now claim the prized position of the oldest son. Then Henry, who was okay with a simpler life outside of court, followed by Thomas, another John, Anthony, then Jane, Elizabeth, Marjorie, and Dorothy. Now, Antonia Fraser claimed in 1992 that the order of the children were as follows. 
John, Edward, Henry, Thomas, Jane, Elizabeth, Dorothy, Marjorie, Anthony, and John. With no real evidence of who was older, Anthony or Marjorie, yet we do know the youngest three children in this instance all died young. Author Elizabeth Norton says that Jane was too young to remember when her older brother died. I tend to disagree with this, since she would have been about 11 years old, a good age for recalling the death of an older sibling. Then you have her siblings, Anthony and Marjorie, who also died young, possibly of the sweating sickness. This is the reason why Jane was especially fearful of catching it herself. In Jane's early years, she was witness at about age four or five to her father going off to fight at the sieges of Theron and Tournay. Around the same time her father was in France, the Battle of Flodden was taking place in the north, led by Queen Catherine as regent. One must wonder if Jane understood what was happening around her at this time and if she worried for her father's safety from the security of her family home at Wolf Hall in Wiltshire. Author Amy Aubrey Lockie of the Seymour family said that Jane Seymour probably had a quiet, humdrum childhood, that she spent little time with books but much at needlework. Some of her childhood needlework was still in existence up to 1652. What we do know about her education is that Jane was literate in English and that she did not learn Latin, which was the gateway to further learning. Jane most likely shared a classroom with her brother Thomas since they were so close in age. As we've learned already, Thomas had no interest in learning and it makes one wonder if that motivated Jane to do better. We also know that Jane enjoyed the outdoors. This was a very important part of her education as a country gentlewoman. Jane became an expert horsewoman, and hunting was one of her favorite outdoor sports. 19th century author Agnes Strickland believed Jane Seymour was educated at French court as a maid to the English princess Mary Tudor when she married King Louis XII of France in 1514. While there is no definitive proof of this, Strickland claimed there is supposedly a portrait of a girl at the Louvre that some believe is that of Jane Seymour. I'm skeptical of this information because Jane would have only been about five or six years old at the time, and that seems very young to become a maid in any household, let alone the household of a queen in France. Between John, his wife Marjorie, their connections at Tudor Court ran deep. Then there was their eldest, Edward, as well, who could help his sister find a position at court. Once there, this would open a world of marriage prospects to Jane. What is not doubted is that in 1529, before Catherine of Aragon lost the title of queen, Jane served in her household as a lady-in-waiting. It is likely that Jane was in the household of a notable lady prior to that of the queen, since, as author David Lode states, a position like that could scarcely have happened except from an established position within the court. Jane Seymour arrived at court when she was 18 or 19 years old, but at what capacity is unknown. Some believe that Sir Francis Bryan had a hand in her placement in the household of Queen Catherine, as well as Queen Anne. History says that at one time, Jane was attached to the son of Sir Robert and Lady Dormer, a neighbor of Wolf Hall. Unfortunately, it is believed that Jane was of too modest a rank to marry a Dormer. Author Janet Wortman of Jane the Queen said in an interview once that she believed Jane was desperate to marry and resentful of her siblings. It's interesting when you see that Jane was 27 when she married, nearly a decade older than most women, and both of her younger sisters had acquired marriages before her. 
It says a lot that her younger sister Elizabeth married sometime before 1530, most likely an indicator that Jane wasn't perceived as a great catch, that her sister's beauty was much greater. Being that John Seymour had so many children and three daughters to marry off, this left very little in the way of a dowry for any marriage. Yet, with that being said, Elizabeth married Sir Anthony Uhtred. While in the household of Queen Catherine, Jane would have been expected to go to Mass and work on needlework, but she would not have been expected to have learned discussion. The most important role at court for Jane would have been that of a woman looking for a husband. In this, Jane was not versed in courtly flirtation. The M.O. of single ladies at court or in the household of the Queen was to play hard to get, be unavailable. This was a skill that came naturally to Jane and may have been a reason why she was still single. Henry VIII married Anne Boleyn in secret around the beginning of 1533. That summer, Henry redesignated Catherine of Aragon as Dowager Princess of Wales and her household was reorganized. Jane was one of the ladies that was removed from the household since she was suspected of sharing similar religious views with Catherine. From there, she was sent to the household of the new queen, Anne Boleyn. By August of that year, Anne, heavily pregnant with her daughter Elizabeth, took to her chamber at Greenwich Palace. Jane and the other ladies would have been there to attend to the queen. Their jobs, since men were not allowed in during a lady's lying in, were to guard the door, wait tables, and routine work such as lighting fires and keeping the place clean. The queen's ladies would have slept on pallet beds in the queen's bedchamber in case something happened during the night. But once the big day grew closer, it was the royal midwife who slept near the queen. Princess Elizabeth was born on the 7th of September, 1533, and the birth was reported as easy. Jane's duties at this point would have been to bring water and wine when Anne needed. Both the king and queen were disappointed in the arrival of a daughter, but were confident that sons would soon follow. The tide began to turn for Queen Anne after her miscarriage in July or August of 1534. That summer of 1535, King Henry and Queen Anne went on their yearly progress across England. One of their stops along the way was the home of John Seymour and Marjorie Wentworth on the 4th of September. Stops along their progress were generally chosen due to size and convenience, but it was also possible that the king wished to visit the home of the woman he fancied, Jane Seymour. It also doesn't hurt that he got along well with Jane's father. At the moment, Anne Boleyn was still securely safe on her throne and Catherine of Aragon was still alive, so Henry would not be thinking about marrying since he would have plenty of wives to go around. So much is unknown about that visit to Wolf Hall, especially if Jane was present. As a member of the Queen's household, surely Jane would have been there. Or would she? We do not know how the entourage for the progress was constructed since there is no documentation of it. Author David Lode states that it's just as likely that Jane stayed behind in London. No matter where she was, Jane's whereabouts in the summer of 1535 are unknown. January of 1536 saw much change in England. On the 7th of January, Catherine of Aragon died at Kimbolton Castle. Two days later, dressed in yellow, Henry and Anne triumphantly paraded to Mass with their daughter Elizabeth. It is believed that the color yellow was the color of celebration of the death of the former queen. At the time, Queen Anne was pregnant again and had good reason to be concerned with the sex of the child. 
If this child proved to be a girl, or if she miscarried, all would be lost for Anne. She understood that the tide had turned, and many wished her removed as queen. Because of the death of his first wife, and pregnancy of his second wife, King Henry decided to stage a tournament. He was 44 years old at the time, and decided to participate in the jousting. He hadn't jousted in several years. It was on the 24th of January, 1536, 17 days after his first wife died, that King Henry fell in the tilt yard during a joust. The king laid motionless for two hours, and some thought all hope was lost. It's been reported that Thomas Howard, third Duke of Norfolk, burst into the Queen's chambers to tell his niece that the king was dead. Anne Boleyn was visibly upset. She was pregnant with the king's child, but without the king, she had no protection from those who wished her harm. Henry recovered from his fall, and five days later, Anne suffered a miscarriage of a male fetus. There is another story, told by Jane Dormer, that Anne had walked in on Jane Seymour sitting on the king's knee, and that that is indeed what caused her miscarriage. This tale is completely fabricated and can be proven by the fact that Dormer was born in 1538, two years after the events occurred. Jane Dormer claimed that she had heard the story from one of Anne's ladies in old age, whose memory may not have been so good after so many years had passed. After this final miscarriage, the door was left open for her enemies to hatch plans to have her removed. Some may have been planning this already and were interrupted when Queen Anne became pregnant. It was clear to many that God did not smile upon this marriage as Anne could not provide the king with a son. Even Cromwell and Chapwee were discussing the topic of Anne being replaced by another, quite a leap if you consider that the two men were at opposite ends of the religious spectrum. It seems at this point that Chapwee was aware of Jane Seymour being a lady of interest to be wife number three. Shortly after that conversation, it was reported that Chapwee received a letter from the Marquess of Exeter and his wife, Gertrude, that said that the lady had rejected a royal gift by the king. After Jane had refused the gift from King Henry, word spread fast about the king's interest in her. Henry informed Jane not to pay attention to the said rumors. Not long after, in March 1536, while the king was at Westminster and Jane at Greenwich, the king sent her yet another gift, to which Jane fell to her knees and kissed the royal missive, telling the messenger that she was a gentlewoman of fair and honorable lineage without reproach saying she had nothing in the world but her honor, which she would not wound for a thousand deaths. It was those words that made Henry realize that any time he would see and speak with Jane, that it should be done in front of family to witness them. Eventually, Jane had accepted a gift from the king, and Anne Boleyn noticed. She asked her lady if she could look at her new necklace, and Jane, knowing Anne would be livid if she saw, drew back. The queen then snatched it from Jane and opened it to find a portrait of the king. In mid-April 1536, Edward and Anne Seymour moved into the apartments at Greenwich, which previously had belonged to Thomas Cromwell. The fact that Cromwell was willing to give up his apartments to Jane shows that he had decided to join the charge against Anne. A secret passage joined the two chambers so Henry could visit Jane without anyone noticing. During the trial of Anne Boleyn, Jane Seymour was noticeably absent from court. She spent time in the household of the king's favorite, Sir Nicholas Carew, in almost regal splendor. The Carew home was only seven miles from London. On the 15th of May, it was noted that she was in a house looking onto the river within a mile of Whitehall. 
It was at this location that Sir Francis Bryan kept Jane in the loop. Jane's reaction to Bryan telling her of Anne's execution was not noted. The question remains, did Jane believe Anne to be guilty of her charges? At the time when Jane caught the king's eye, Anne was already in disfavor with Cromwell and a majority of English subjects blamed her for the lack of papal authority in England. On the 18th of May, the imperial ambassador wrote to Cardinal Granville of Jane Seymour saying, She is the sister to Sir Edward Seymour, of middle stature and no great beauty. She is over 25 years old and has long frequented the court. She is not a woman of great wit, but may be of good understanding. It is said that she is included to be proud and haughty, and has a good affection towards the princess. Of course, Chapuis is referring to Mary. On the 19th of May, the day Anne Boleyn was executed, Cromer issued a dispensation for Henry and Jane to marry, although within the third degree of affinity. What that affinity is is unknown, but one can assume that the king was just covering his bases to make sure that this marriage, his third, was completely valid. The day after the execution of Anne Boleyn, Jane Seymour traveled to Hampton Court Palace and was secretly betrothed to Henry VIII. The king's swift action was ill-taken by many people, seeing it as a marriage that was planned before the execution of Anne. Henry, aware of this, attempted to keep the betrothal secret for some time, but it was a matter of hours, and word had spread all over court. When we think of Jane Seymour, it's usually of that of a woman who was a pawn for her family, a sweet and kind lady who tried to bring Mary back into the king's good graces. But what about a woman who knew that her placement on the throne would be the cost of another's life? What about that woman? There was a side of Jane Seymour that we don't hear about. The side that was willing to take part in the events that placed her on the throne next to King Henry VIII. Think about that for a moment. After the not-so-secret betrothal, some believe that Jane, and possibly Henry, went to her family home in Wiltshire, Wolf Hall. Then, on the 30th of May, 1536, Henry and Jane married at Whitehall in the Queen's Closet. Henry's personal wedding gift to Jane was a gold cup designed by Hans Holbein and engraved with their initials entwined with a love knot. Jane's motto appeared three times on the cup, bound to obey and serve. On the 1st of June, 1536, Henry and Jane traveled by barge to Greenwich, a week after the wedding, Henry was already talking about the prince hoped for in due season. Henry was optimistic that soon he would have the legitimate heir he longed for and lost two wives over. A lot happened at the beginning of June. On the 2nd of June, Jane was shown to the court as queen. On the 3rd of June, Sir John Russell wrote a letter to Lord Lyle that said this about the new queen. I assure you, she is as gentle a lady as ever I knew and as fair a queen as any in Christendom. The king has come out of hell into heaven for the gentleness of this and the cursedness and unhappiness of the other. Then on the 4th of June, she was proclaimed Queen of England at Greenwich. On the 5th, her brother Edward was created Viscount Beauchamp. On the 7th of June, the royal couple traveled by barge from Greenwich to Whitehall. As they rode down the Thames, there was much fanfare. Every ship shot guns and Chapuis sent his trumpeters and musicians to float around the barge to play music for the newlyweds. The Tower of London was draped in streamers and banners and saluted the couple. Must have been quite a sight. The king's appearance at the time was not the marvel it had once been. 
Henry was still a tall man of six foot two, but had put on much weight with age. It was noted at the time that the king wore a hat to hide the fact that he no longer had much hair. The following day, on the 8th of June, Parliament convened and passed an act confirming that both Mary and Elizabeth Tudor were illegitimate, which settled the succession of any children that may be born to Jane or any future wives. Now, when we look at the relationship between Queen Jane and Lady Mary, it's often showcased as Jane pushing Henry VIII to bring his daughter back to court and reinstate her in the line of succession. While Jane was determined to bring the king's daughter back into favor, it wasn't necessarily her doing. That same month, the Lady Mary finally appeased her father by declaring herself illegitimate and recognized him as the head of the Church of England. Both things were required for her survival. Jane's gentle pushes with the king in regards to his daughter may not have gotten her back in the king's inner circle, but it did show Henry what a good heart his new queen had. Only a couple weeks after the king received the letter of submission from his daughter, he and the queen traveled to Hunston and visited with Mary for the day. It was this visit that the queen presented the Lady Mary with a very fine diamond ring, and Henry gave his daughter a thousand crowns. He told her if there was anything else she needed that she need only to ask. Queen Jane's first couple months in her new position were a whirlwind of activity. After their return from Hunston, Jane had her first reception with an ambassador when King Henry planned a moment for the imperial ambassador and Jane to talk. During their conversation, Chapuis told Jane that he wished for her to be the all-needed peacemaker. He used the term Pacific for Jane. When Henry returned and heard what the ambassador had called Jane, he agreed and said that Jane wished for peace. Besides that, her nature was gentle and inclined to peace. She would not for the world that he were engaged in war, that she might not be separated from him. It appears that the king and queen were very happy with one another at this point in their marriage. The only thing that can make it any better is if Jane would become pregnant, something she was all too aware of. Henry and Jane went on summer progress and traveled east to Rochester, Sittingbourne, and Canterbury, all the way to the coast, ending at Dover Castle. They had many hunting expeditions and were said to have killed 20 stags on the 9th of August alone. While they were on progress, plans were being made for Jane's coronation. Initially, there were plans to hold the coronation on the Feast of St. Michael and All Angels on the 29th of September, which would have been perfect to coincide with all the festivities that were already associated with this day. Eustace Chapuis reported that Henry would perform wonders for his new queen and no doubt wipe out any memories of the last disgraced queen's coronation. Then there was an outbreak of a plague that put a halt to all plans for the coronation. Maybe by the time the plans resumed, the queen might be with child. The king and queen returned to London in December 1536, and on the 22nd of that month, the couple rode through the city in great state. According to Agnes Strickland, there was a record that indicates the severity of the weather that winter. It was said that the king, queen, and the whole court rode across the Thames on horseback to Greenwich Palace. In early spring 1537, Jane discovered she was pregnant. Henry had great reason to rejoice, for he believed she was carrying the son he had so long desired. The pregnancy was announced in April when Henry relayed the great news to the Privy Council. Yay! Jane's life changed immediately after she realized she was pregnant. As always, when a Tudor queen was pregnant, she could no longer be intimate with the king, for fear of harm to the child. Jane's life would have included a great lack of excitement for what she had experienced previously. 
Her biggest concern was to protect the child that she was carrying. By late May at Hampton Court, it was announced that the child had moved in her womb. One courtier wrote, God send her good deliverance of a prince to the joy of all the faithful subjects. On the 16th of September, Jane took to her chamber at Hampton Court in preparation for the birth of what was hoped to be a prince. Lady Mary had been with Jane for the last few weeks and would also be present in the chamber with her stepmother. By early October, it seemed obvious that the birth was imminent. Then on the 9th of October, the Queen's labor began. Jane's labor lasted three days and three nights. It was reported that she would have to be cut open to secure a safe delivery of the child. There is no evidence of a cesarean since that procedure was not known at the time, and no proof that Henry had to choose between Jane and the child if one had to be saved. At 2 in the morning on the 12th of October, an exhausted Jane delivered a healthy, fair-haired boy. Her labor was long and painful, but she had survived the delivery, and so had the child. Henry was over the moon with glee that he had finally had a son, a legitimate heir to the throne. They named the child Edward, Duke of Cornwall, from the moment he was born. By 10 in the evening on the same day, Jane was sitting in her bed having someone write a letter to Cromwell for her to inform him that they had delivered a son, a prince. Her letter was signed, Jane the Queen. On the day of Prince Edward's christening, the guests had gathered beforehand in the Queen's apartments. Jane was lying on a bed of crimson, lined with cloth of gold. Around her, she wore a crimson mantle edged with ermine. Her blonde hair flowed loosely. Beside Jane sat the king. When the little prince was brought to Jane, she gave him her blessing. In the Annals of the Seymours, the author states that at this time it was required for the queen to attend the christening and that the queen was carried from her room to the chapel on a pallet or a sofa. She was propped up with cushions and wrapped in a crimson velvet mantle. It also states that King Henry sat next to her during the entire ceremony. While this makes for a great visual, there is no evidence to corroborate this story. The following day, Jane suffered a bad attack of diarrhea, which left her very ill. By evening, she was feeling better. That night, she fell ill again, and early the following day, her health was of growing concern. At the time, it seemed obvious that she was suffering from childbed fever. Jane's condition continued to worsen, and Henry was called to be by her side. In the early hours of the 24th of October, 1537, the queen slipped quietly away. Queen Jane was dead. Henry was destroyed by the death of his wife, his favorite wife, for she gave him a long-desired son. The people of England shared in their king's grief. This is evident by a ballad that was written about her and was published in the popular Ancient Poems of the Peasantry of England. We'll end this podcast with this beautiful yet historically inaccurate ballad. Queen Jane was in travail for six weeks or more till the women grew tired and fain would give o'er. O women, O women, good wives if ye be, go send for King Henry and bring him to me. King Henry was sent for, he came with all speed, in a ground of green velvet from heel to the heed. King Henry, King Henry, if kind Henry you be, send for a surgeon and bring him to me. The surgeon was sent for, he came with all speed, in a gown of black velvet from heel to the heed. He gave her rich coddle, but the death sleep slept she, 
Then her right side was opened and the babe was set free. The babe it was christened and put out and nursed, while the royal Queen Jane she lay cold in the dust. So black was the morning, and white were the wands, yellow, yellow the torches they bore in their hands. The bells they were muffled and mournful did play, while the royal Queen Jane she lay cold in the clay. Six knights and six lords bore her corpse through the grounds, six dukes followed after in black morning gowns. The flower of old England was laid in the cold clay, whilst the royal King Henry came weeping away. Thank you so much for joining me for this week's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any questions, feel free to email me at EnglishHistoryBlogger at gmail.com. That's EnglishHistoryBlogger at gmail.com. Next week, I'll be taking the week off to spend some time with my family. I'll be traveling home to see my parents and my siblings. So it'll be two weeks from now that we will hear another podcast. Thank you so much and see you in two weeks.